Welcome to the BJ Psych International Podcast. In this episode... It's also a big question is to who knows about this and why don't we know about this and why is there no research about it or if there is, why isn't it available? Dr. Janetta Rands discusses post-flight confusion. Does flying affect the brain? Hello and welcome to the BJ Psych International Podcast. My name is Sachin Shah. I am a general adult psychiatrist and I'm joined by... Hamilton Moran, and I'm an FY2 doctor. Hamilton, you work within general medicine. I used to work within liaison psychiatry. So I think the dynamic tends to be that I'd see your patients when they are experiencing acute confusional state. What can you tell me about delirium? Well, I I can only hope that the referrals you received were to your liking. But honestly, it's really interesting how it can happen right under your nose and especially because you have teams rotating you know day team hand over to night team who may not be as familiar with the patient or as a foundation doctor you might be on one ward one day then another ward the next day so it's all too easy to see a patient who may be a bit quiet day four post-op hip replacement or a patient who's come in with a UTI on a medical ward and think, oh, this is their baseline when it totally isn't. And that's why it's so important to take into account the whole picture and speak with the whole multidisciplinary team and also family and relatives. Relatives are incredibly helpful and useful to get context and to understand who this person is and what they're usually like. Because delirium goes missed and it's a killer it actually causes a lot of morbidity and increased mortality you know to the outsider it can be easily dismissed as just a funny episode when it can be so much more than that you were telling me about delirium a few days ago in fact that it's not something that was recognized until recently well i came across an interesting twitter thread about the upcoming World Delirium Day, which I think is 17th of March, 2021. And someone was tweeting about upcoming World Delirium Awareness Day and how far medicine and psychiatry and healthcare in general has come to the recognition of delirium and how the term that used to be more commonly used was acute confusional state. But the problem with this term is not everyone who has delirium may seem confused. They may seem more agitated or more aggressive than their usual self but not necessarily confused, or they may seem quieter, or their mood may change. So, of course, confusion is a large part of delirium. And in fact, the assessment method that is used for delirium, CAM, stands for Confusion Assessment Method. So clearly, confusion is a big part. But the components of CAM are acute onset of mental status changes or a fluctuating course, and inattention, and either disorganized thinking or altered level of consciousness and a common way to separate or class delirium would be overall talking about hyperactive delirium where one is so to speak more energetic maybe more agitated and hypoactive delirium where one kind of withdraws into themselves and may seem quieter less talkative and perhaps more confused 
And the underlying risk factors for developing delirium, obviously being on a general medical ward or a surgical ward, delirium occurs with between 15 to 40% of patients, but a higher proportion of them are going to be elderly and people with a diminished, what we call cerebral reserve, meaning like, you know, people with pre-existing dementia, for example. Why is it so important? I mean, you mentioned mortality with an estimated 25% mortality rate at three months following delirium. Why is it so important to catch delirium? Well, there's many reasons. One reason I can give is that sometimes delirium may be a sign of underlying infection that has occurred. And sometimes a patient might not present with an infection. They may come in for other reasons, but then develop a hospital-acquired infection. And so delirium can be a sign of that. Also, delirium can be a sign of poorly managed pain. And sometimes postoperatively, it can be difficult to manage pain or meet a patient's pain needs. And sometimes delirium can be a sign that those pain needs are not being met. What's more, it can affect a patient's ability to engage in their treatment at hospital they may begin to refuse medications or they may begin to refuse personal care and treatment, which in the long run obviously harms them and makes it harder for them to receive the care that they need, essentially. Now, say you've correctly identified the delirium and you've treated the underlying cause and treated symptomatically. What is the eventual outcome for people who have had delirium? Well... If we're talking short term, it's said that people often don't remember large parts of their episodes of delirium, but there have been some interesting first-hand accounts. And in fact, there was a recent first-person account, a write-up of COVID-19 delirium by a doctor who themselves unfortunately became ill with COVID-19 and they were in ITU for a time. And often people do remember bits and pieces of their experience and even bits and pieces of their thought process of what they thought was going on. This is a separate report, but there was an interesting write-up of an experience of delirium where someone could clearly remember the fact that they thought they were trapped in a reverse version of the hospital underground that was upside down, where the healthcare staff they believed posed a risk to them and that the other patients were being kept there as prisoners. So, of course, I think a lot of people, even if they do remember bits and pieces of it, are quite scared by their memory of it or feel a bit ashamed and embarrassed and therefore try not to dwell on it or talk about it too much and there can be a lot of stigma and that's kind of in the immediate phase after recovery but long term in terms of outcomes unfortunately having episodes of delirium is associated with increased risk of developing dementia in the future and i guess the question is is the delirium itself an indicator of reduced neurological reserve or does the process of having delirium mean that you've had a form of damage to your neurological system that makes you more prone to acquiring dementia it's, it's difficult to say mm. and probably varies from case to case well that definitely lays out the importance of catching delirium and especially both for the life-saving nature of identifying delirium and treating it properly but also then understanding what it could mean in the long term have you ever considered flight as a cause of delirium? <laughs> um, I'll be honest, I hadn't really. I know every time I get on a plane, I will admit, I do find it very easy to just get to sleep. I've never had any problem with sleeping on a plane 
but I guess it's a strange experience, isn't it? You're more likely to have delirium if you're in an unfamiliar environment. And a plane, for most people, certainly wouldn't be their normal environment. But no, I personally hadn't. But having read the article by Dr. Janetta Rands and colleagues that we're going to go into today, I think I've had my eyes open to the possibility of air travel as being a precipitator of delirium, or at the very least, a confusional state. And can you just let the listeners know about the article? So Dr. Janetta Rands, Dr. Thomas McCabe, and Dr. Chris Imray have published this fantastically interesting article titled Post-Flight Confusion. Does flying affect the brain? The authors do specify early on that a lot of the content of the article is based on anecdotal and clinical observation and deals with a lot of theoreticals regarding possible mechanisms behind any post-flight confusional state. But all fields of work have to start somewhere. And I think it does raise some absolutely fantastic questions that, who knows, frankly, in 10 years' time, we might all be sitting and watching a big Netflix documentary about how for years people have been using airplanes without being aware of the possible cognitive impact of air travel. (laughs) Well, that certainly piqued my interest. And let's have a listen to the interview we did with Dr. Janetta Rands, lead author of the paper, who takes us through the thinking behind post-flight confusion. You should totally have a transition sound of like, meow. So if you don't mind introducing yourself and your role and what it is that interested you in this topic to write about it for the BJ Psych International. Good afternoon. I'm Janetta Rands and I'm a psychiatrist. I'm on the GMC Specialist Register for Old Age and for General Psychiatry and I was an NHS doctor for 34 years. I mean, I retired and I have a small independent practice in the middle of London. And during my 23 years as a consultant, I had one session of liaison psychiatry, which is relevant to this discussion because this is where I saw cases which prompted my interest in this topic. After retiring in 2018, I've edited and written a book called Psychiatry Women's Voices, and that was published by Oxford University Press. And the purpose of that was to try and redress the gender imbalance in publications in all academic fields, actually. And every chapter in that book is written by a woman. Nearly all of them are psychiatrists, but we've also got a manager and a journalist involved there as well. And I've just finished writing a chapter for a book due out next year entitled women and mental health in the UK 1960 to 2010. So even though I've left the NHS, I continue to work and to do these writing projects, I would say. What did bring your attention to post-flight confusion? As I say, I started noticing that some people suffered ill effects following flying years and years ago. I suppose I first noticed in the 80s when I was a medical student at the Royal Free and we had an elderly 
family friends, visitors from Barbados. And he was normally a very bright academic, intellectual sort of person. But after arriving in London, he was very, very confused. And it lasted two or three days. And his behavior was inappropriate. And he behaved awfully towards his wife. And he didn't seem to know where he was. And although he was in his 70s, he was behaving like a man in his 40s. And that reversed after about three days. But I did sort of think, why? is this chap behaving like this? And then again, in the 1990s, we had an elderly cousin visit from America. Well, he was an art historian and he arrived in London. He was completely confused. He wanted to go around the Sainsbury's wing of the new National Gallery. So we took him and he was used to giving seminars and lectures about all the paintings and he was very excited to see them all. But he'd stand right close to the painting and then talk for about 15 minutes and in a really academic, and knowledgeable way but the security staff at the gallery were getting very upset because his behavior was inappropriate you know he was behaving like a man half his age who had a role in that gallery but he wasn't he was just a visitor so I kind of noticed that I know with him that about 10 years later he did develop dementia but I don't know about the other person so I kind of noticed from these personal experiences. So then when I became a consultant in the early 1990s with my liaison session, I started noticing that sometimes patients were referred with acute onset confusion and with no obvious reason, and they'd recently flown. So my geriatrician colleagues became quite used to me looking out for these post-flight confusion cases, and they'd say, oh, I've got another one for you, you know, and they'd do the full medical workup, and they couldn't find any other cause for a delirium. But if the person had recently flown within the last two or three days, we all wondered if that could be something which was precipitating this confusional state. Sometimes people had a, you know, a mild cognitive impairment before they travelled, but an awful lot of them were de novo. They had no history of cognitive impairment. They just got this acute confusional state. So that's when I first started noticing. And then I suppose in my time as a consultant from in the 90s and 2000s, patients and their families would often ask about the safety of flying and whether it was safe to take a relative with dementia back to or to visit somebody, say, in Cyprus or Greece or the West Indies or whatever. So I did an evidence-based medicine analysis of the literature, which was published in the Psychiatry Bulletin in 2002. So what I did is a full literature search about the risks of flying for people with dementia, looked at a lot of the international databases. I also scanned newspapers for relevant articles, which might be good leads. I contacted the Civil Aviation Authority. I contacted Heathrow Occupational Health Department and the Terminal Health Control Units at Heathrow. And I discovered from them, this was back in the early 2000s, that over a three-year period at Heathrow, 61 passengers died in flight and arrived dead at the airport, of which 11 were due to pulmonary emboli. So obviously that's data 20 years out of date. I don't know what it currently is. But, you know, a significant number of passengers don't survive the flight, Mm. which obviously is not really broadcast very much. 
So I analysed all this information and I looked at aviation medicine articles and altitude medicine articles and wrote my paper, which was published in the bulletin. So that was quite a good basis for me to advise my elderly patients that if they could avoid flying, I thought they probably should do. And then in 2004, the British Medical Association, their Board of Science and Education, published a statement which they called The Impact of Flying on Passenger Health, a Guide for Healthcare Professionals. And this was mostly about the risks of infections, DVTs, in-flight emergencies and so forth. In-flight emergencies were estimated to be about 1 in 1,400 to 12,000 passengers, so quite rare. But of course, all the research that they looked at and analysed was done in fit young men, Mm. because nearly all aviation and altitude medicine research is done in fit young men. So usually they're RAF people, Air Force and pilots. So there's no information at all about older people's physiology, women, children, or people with existing medical conditions. It's a whole area of knowledge which is very poorly understood. So I've been on, (laughs) in a kind of low-key way, I've been niggling on about this um, problem, which I think could really be quite serious. And in 2011, I wrote to the BMJ raising concerns about the health of passengers who were not fit young men. And that was in response to an article about flying. I can't remember what it was. But I mentioned confusion in older people. I'll deviate a little bit from confusion now just because there's a couple of other relevant observations that I was making then and I put in this letter. And one of them was about an observation that an awful lot of women I knew, be they friends, colleagues, patients, friends of friends, had miscarried after flying. And some of them, they'd been quite late miscarriages, up to about 18 weeks. And they'd all wondered whether flying could have contributed. And I wonder too, but you know, there are an awful lot of women who are miscarrying after flying. And because often their pregnancies are early, they haven't really told anyone about them, and they miscarry and they don't really tell anyone about that either. So it's a great silent loss. Is there any official guidance about flying and pregnancy, which mentions this risk? The airlines are most worried about babies being born on flights, in flights. So they say that, I can't remember the cutoff, it's about 34 weeks or something, but you're not allowed to fly after a certain date, in a certain time in the pregnancy, because of the risk of delivering on board. But there was, I don't know if you know, the one show on BBC One, there's a presenter called Alex Jones, and a few years ago, she described what she called a silent miscarriage after 14 weeks after she flew to New Zealand. So she was concerned that they might be linked. And I think, you know, the airline's quite lucky because this is a big sort of secretive area, which women don't really talk about. But if there was some survey or research or investigation about whether the risk of miscarriage was greater after flying, I think there'd be some quite interesting information that came to light. Mm. And when you think about what happens to the body, the human physiology at in-flight environments, it makes sense that something like this might be linked. Obviously not for every pregnancy, but for some. So um, that was one thing that I noticed. 
And another thing I noticed around that time was, well, a very sad story, really, of somebody we knew who was an extraordinary woman who'd had kidney failure and had a kidney transplant. And after her transplant, she'd had a full-time pregnancy and had a lovely daughter. And when the daughter was in her teens, they decided as a great treat for both of them that they would go to Disneyland, Florida. And so off they flew. And within two weeks of coming back, this woman rejected her kidney Mm. and had to go back onto dialysis and had subsequently died. And again, when you think about what might be happening in any capillary network in the body that might be a bit compromised, you can think, well, maybe transplants are at risk. And if you had a transplant, you'd probably rather get the train to Disneyland Paris if you knew that there might be a risk. So, you know, these are things that I was noticing, which I've not seen commented on anywhere else. But I think it's worth just saying that that was you know, part of my journey towards becoming aware of some of the risks of flying. In my current practice, I continue to see people with post-flight confusion. And I have an interesting patient who lives in the Channel Islands. And I asked him, he comes across for review once or twice a year, and I asked him and his wife if they'd ever noticed that he was more confused. He's got a mild dementia. Was he ever more confused after flying? And they said, well, if we come by jet, he's more confused for two or three days after flying. But if they take the prop, it's fine. And the prop is the propeller service from the Channel Islands, which of course is not pressurized and flies very low because it's not pressurized. So in that environment, he doesn't get post-flight confusion. But if he travels on the jet, which flies very high and has an artificially controlled pressurized cabin, he's confused for two or three days. So I, and they'd noticed that before I'd mentioned anything. So I thought that was, you know, it's all contributing to my little cluster of observations about this possibility, really. And you mentioned the effect of flight on what's going on in the capillaries. And I'm guessing that what you're referring to there is that when you fly, there's lower pressure, which is associated with the expansion of airspaces, as you've written in your article, which you've mentioned various things that can be associated with that, which, first of all, the expansion of airspaces occurs in the bowels, sinuses, and recent surgical sites, but also that lower air pressures are associated with peripheral edema, which would be the leakage of capillaries in that sense, and potential bleeding from varices. Yes. I haven't come across a case of that, but one of my co-writers wanted to include that, but it does make absolute sense. So in 2017, Thomas McCabe, who's a psychiatry trainee in Scotland, published a case review in the bulletin, and he called it, Doc, Can I Fly to Australia? And he described in great detail the sort of case that I've been seeing and I've been talking to you about. So I contacted him and said, look, I think this is really, really important. You've had this case published. Would you like to maybe do something more on the basis? of this? Shall we offer to present a seminar or something? So we offered to present a seminar to the nearest psychiatry faculty at the college. And also at that time, I contacted Chris Imray, who is a vascular surgeon and renal surgeon, who is a specialist in altitude medicine and expedition medicine. He's climbed all the world's peaks, I think. And he was part of another study looking at 
cognition at altitude. So the three of us joined up as a rather unlikely trio, and we presented the seminar at the faculty annual conference, and it was called something like What Happens to the Brain During Flight? And we had about 30 people attending, and everyone in the audience knew what we were talking about. They'd all seen cases of post-flight confusion. There was a colleague from New Zealand, and they said they were seeing them about once a month. And doctors know about this. It's just Nobody quite knows what to do with these observations or this information. So on the basis of that, we then wrote an article for the faculty newsletter, which then led to writing the article that you're wanting to talk about today, which is in the International British Journal of Psychiatry. So that's how we got got to there. For me, a long route, and I'm very grateful to Chris and Tom, because having co-authors makes a huge difference to how one can think about things and formulate ideas, really. So I'm very grateful to them. And Tom, being younger, obviously, I hope he'll continue this interest throughout his career and get more people to join him, really. Yes, because as you mentioned, this is something that clearly requires more research because it doesn't seem to be extensively researched at the moment. Can we just lay a bedrock on this? Because we're talking about post-flight confusion and you've mentioned some cases. Do you have a working definition for post-flight confusion? I don't know that we have a really formal definition, but I think the definition is in the term. It's confusion that happens after flying. Mm -hmm. And the way I think we're thinking about it at the moment is that it is very similar to a delirium, which, as you know, is an acute confusion, usually attributable to a medical cause. And the key symptoms of a delirium are the fluctuating level of consciousness, an acute decline in cognitive function, and changes in perception, such as visual hallucinations and the usual practice when someone's admitted with a delirium is to do a very detailed medical workup all blood tests urine brain scans etc etc and in people with post-flight confusion there are no positive findings there's no sign that they've had a stroke or any cerebral edema or anything like that there's absolutely nothing to find so you know we suggest that if you don't find anything, ask about whether someone's flown in the past few days, because it's quite possible that there has been what we think is probably a low level of hypoxia during the flight, which might have contributed to their symptoms. For most of these people, we don't know the outcome. Some of them seem to get better. We know of some who have progressed to getting a lot worse and have died within a couple of years of their presenting index event. But it's something that, you know, obviously if one did research in it, one would want to know whether the risks were the same of anybody with delirium in terms of mortality and morbidity. And when you say they get worse, and we know that delirium carries an increased risk of eventual dementia, are these people who progress to dementia or is it varied? We know of a few who have done. Okay. But, you know, I can't, I can't say really. You discussed the conditions under which post-flight confusion might be arising and mentioning that, I mean, the main thing about being in one of these planes is that the air pressure is controlled at 74.5 to 84.1 kilopascals, which corresponds to lower than the actual altitude, but the corresponding altitude is 6,000 to 8,000 feet. 
Correct. And you've got a table within the article which says what physiologically happens to us at all these different altitudes. Yes. At 6,000 to 8,000 feet, what is the effect on us? I put this table together from a number of sources, actually, mostly from Altitude Medicine textbook. So at six to 8,000 feet, at that altitude, the available oxygen in the air is reduced. And the normal physiological response is for the oxygen saturation in passengers' blood to reduce to about 90%. At ground level, obviously, it's 98 to 99%. And when this happens in a healthy person, the physiological response is an increase in respiratory rate and an increase in heart rate. And that's what happens in fit young people. Now, you know, this sounds ridiculous. Are all passengers traveling with 90% oxygen saturation? And the answer is yes. I mean, I've got two pulse oximeters and I lend them to friends and family and I take them with me and I travel. And if you monitor your O2, it goes down. And the lowest I've had on a flight from Singapore actually was about 83%. And that was in the middle of the flight and it was a night flight. And I think they thought that everybody would be asleep and, you know, nicely euphoric with their mild hypoxia and not notice. But I was measuring. And also on that flight, I measured a couple of the air stewardesses because they got interested in what I was doing. And the air stewardesses' PO2s were at about 93, 94. And when they were at ground level, they were back to 99. So obviously, they weren't as extreme as mine, but they were regular flyers. And so one would expect physiologically that their hematocrit was probably a bit higher than mine, so they could accommodate this regular and recurrent experience of mild hypoxia. Like an athlete who does altitude training, for example. Absolutely so, yeah. So what else happens? You've talked about Boyle's Law and air spaces. Another thing that happens, which we don't understand and probably needs investigating, is what is the effect of a rapid change of available oxygen? So when you fly, you go from ground level to the equivalent of six to 8,000 feet above sea level in about 20 minutes. And you do the same when you descend and land. You go down from that height in 20, 30 minutes to ground level. Whereas if you're trekking, it probably takes you a day to walk that height. So you're putting in a lot of energy and you're taking six or eight hours to get to that altitude. So what we don't know is what happens when you have sort of passive reduction in available oxygen that is very rapid. I don't know any of those answers and I've searched for them, but I suggest, you know, that would be something that needed researching as well, actually. The other thing to ask, because one of the effects you mentioned about at 8,000 feet, and also the interesting thing to mention, obviously, is that the actual pressure if the plane were not pressurized at the height of a plane is incompatible with life, as you mentioned. So obviously that's the reason for the pressurization in a plane. The other thing you mentioned at 8,000 feet, which is the equivalent pressure once you're in a pressurized plane, is that you experience altitude sickness or what a climber would experience as altitude sickness. What is altitude sickness? (laughs) What is altitude sickness? Well, it's an experience that some people get when they get to a reasonably high altitude. And actually, it can start quite low. It can start at about 2,500 metres, which is about 8,000 feet. And people are very variable in their susceptibility to altitude sickness. So in terms of signs, it's associated with increased heart rate, increased respiratory rate, 
increased diastolic blood pressure, increased body temperature, and peripheral and pulmonary edema. And it can also cause cerebral edema, which can be fatal. So it's quite a nasty condition. And the symptoms are headache, nausea, vomiting, dizziness, fatigue, and insomnia, which are all symptoms of jet lag as well. Is it okay that we're flying with a drop in our sats like this? Presumably, if I went on a flight, my sats would also drop. Is this just something that we physiologically can adapt to and it's fine, or are there health implications? Well, I think that's the big question, isn't it? It's also a big question is to who knows about this and why don't we know about this and why is there no research about it? Or if there is, why isn't it available? The research is in fit young people, so fit young men in particular can adjust physiologically. You increase your heart rate, you increase your respiratory rate, and the effect of the hypoxia is probably less than it would be in somebody who's not so fit or somebody who's older. I mean, there is concern that some of the things people regularly do on flights, like drink alcohol or take hypnotics, actually impairs their physiological adaptation. So they might well have much worse experience from the mild hypoxia than they would do if they didn't take those things. So those people might find that they have a longer episode of jet lag afterwards. I think the other thing, which is, um, you know, it's rather... Strange thinking about it all, but mild hypoxia makes some people feel quite euphoric. You know, it's that sort of mild asphyxiation, which some people experiment with in sexual practices and occasionally goes horribly wrong and ends up being fatal. But a lot of people... Probably when they're flying, they get the mild hypoxia and they just think, oh, it's so wonderful. I'm going on this fabulous holiday. It's a lovely air flight, a lovely flight and wonderful service I'm getting. And oh, I'm so pleased. And, and then they watch films and they feel euphoric and over emotional. And, you know, everything's sort of all their emotions are slightly heightened because they're slightly hypoxic. But no one attributes that to something which might be quite risky. It's all part of a great holiday and they're having a lovely time. So have another drink, really, and don't worry about it. I think there are a lot of questions, really, still that need to be addressed. I want to quickly just address the other light conditions that you mentioned, one of them being humidity. And you yeah. say that there's an added effect of cabin humidity, which is 1% to 20% at cruising air pressure, while our actual comfort zone is 50 to 65% humidity. Yeah. So it's lower humidity. What does this lower humidity do to us or what is it thought to do to us? I don't really know much about this, but I mean, it obviously can cause dehydration. Most people drink quite adequate amounts of fluids on board and a lot of the fluids might cause some edema, particularly in their ankles. But I guess the main risk of dehydration is that it might increase the risk of DVTs because you're increasing your hematocrit. But I don't, I'm afraid, know a great deal more than that. And again, this sounds like something to me that if I were dehydrated on a plane, I would very easily just compensate by drinking, right? Okay. Like we don't normally accidentally get dehydrated, but perhaps more vulnerable people would be more vulnerable to it. So older people, yeah, for example. Absolutely. People Sorry. don't like getting up and going to the toilet. You know, old people might find that very inconvenient, so they're going to cut back on their fluid intake. They might get very short-term, you know, the, their urea and electrolytes would go up to get dehydrated, but I reckon it self-regulates very quickly. 
the other condition you mentioned, uh, I wonder if you could comment on air quality in cabins. The main thing you mentioned was that it's not regulated. What does that expose us to? Well, who knows? I mean, it is extraordinary that a huge space like an airplane with how many? 600 passengers and recycled controlled air does not have an international quality control system. Office blocks have their air regulated and they have to have, you know, below certain levels of CO2, ozone, microbes, and temperature, I suppose, is another thing. But in-flight cabins are not regulated. There are occasional what are called fume events, F-U-M-E, which the airlines note, and that's when the cabin has been overwhelmed by fumes from something, so maybe from the engines or from, I don't know what they get fumes from, but they refer to this as toxic gases in the cabin, and occasionally planes have to land prematurely because of this. But it seems to be something that they're aware of and that they log and obviously the staff are very concerned about it too. But that's about all I know. It's quite difficult to get this information. You know, I've spent many hours searching Boeing websites. And information is sometimes available for a very short time. You see it one week and the next week it's gone. And you think, ah, oh, no. <laughs> I mean, one such example was Boeing are aware that a number of passengers get respiratory problems during flight and after flying. And they estimated that it used to be one in four passengers who got respiratory problems. And they now reckon it's about one in 12 because of the way they've modified some of their design. But it's still one in 12 passengers. That's a lot of people on a full jet flight, isn't it? who have respiratory problems after flying. And I suppose there's also the effect of being cooped up with so many other people. Obviously, you wouldn't go on a flight these days. Mm -hmm. uh, but even before then, there's always the risk of catching airborne infections as well. So we've got various exposures or different conditions that we're not used to. But you go back to the idea of oxygenation, basically, about altitude. And this is where you get very theoretical, which is what this lack of oxygen is doing to our brains. First of all, how are our bodies compensating to maintain perfusion and oxygenation to the brain? Well, the main way that happens is by increasing heart rate and respiratory rate. So you're increasing oxygenation and circulation. So that's what the body does to compensate. But still, it appears that oxygen saturation of the blood in flight is reduced. And for some people... That might not have too great an effect, but for some people it might. And if you think of the cellular mechanisms, I think I've got a table in this paper as well, which shows it's a graph of ATP supply and the balance of ATP supply and demand on a cellular level um, and what happens when the cell gets mildly hypoxic and also what happens when it gets more severely hypoxic. But a lot of our cellular processes are very sensitive to relatively small changes in oxygen. So for instance, mitochondria, if they are deprived of adequate oxygen, they stop making ATP and there's a big imbalance in the ATP supply and demand. And then what happens is that mitochondria, it's called mitophagy, when the mitochondria sort of eat themselves, they kind of disintegrate. And this sort of mechanism is also apparent on the endoplasmic reticulum, apparently, where you get membranes depolarizing. So there are mechanisms whereby mild hypoxia can 
severely affect cell function, which can cause cell death. And in neurons in particular, because neurons are such very, very long cells, mitochondria migrate up and down the neuron apparently to where they're needed and relatively mild hypoxia can apparently affect this migration. Incidentally, mitochondria and their migration is one of the theories of the etiology of Parkinson's disease. But again, I mean, something is not my field, being a jobbing psychiatrist, but all scientists are, or biologists particularly are interested in this sort of mechanism. But clearly more research would be needed. This is theoretical and I can absolutely see its relevance, say, in asphyxia, where you're completely oxygen deprived. And obviously this is the mechanism of cell death, which is going to lead to brain death. Do you think brain cells are plausibly getting damaged with the mild hypoxia seen in flights? Well, I think until we prove that it's not, then we have to say it might be because that would be a mechanism to explain the confusion, wouldn't it? Now, we're talking about the effects of hypoxia on the brain, we're talking about effects on cognition, and there's been some research on the effects of high altitude on cognition. What can we note? You mentioned one study which was done by Griva et al. on Everest trekkers. What was that about, and what do we note from that? Well, that was a great study, actually, and that was one that my co-author, Chris Imray, was involved with, not only as an author, but also as a participant. And they talk about environmental hyperbaric hypoxia, EHH, which I suppose you could also apply to in-flight cabin environments because it's a hyperbaric environmental hypoxia. And they investigated a large group of healthy volunteers, 198 trekkers they had, and they did a whole range of physiological and cognitive tests on them at several levels, at ground level, at Everest Base Camp. Everest Base Camp is 5,300 metres, which is about 15,000 feet. So it's the available oxygen is less than in most commercial flights. And they had some controls who were trekkers who didn't ascend. They just walked around near ground level. And they found some very interesting findings that there were effects on cognition. In particular, for people at Everest Base Camp, there was a reduction in their attention, verbal ability and executive function and that this impairment persisted once they had descended. So maybe that's because their mitochondria were upset, I don't know. But it didn't persist forever, but it persisted after they'd fully descended to ground level, which is quite interesting. But the very significant finding at P less than 0.0001 was that older trekkers had a much greater cognitive decline than younger trekkers. I would have to read the paper again to find out what they meant by older, but I suspect it's trekkers in their 50s and 60s, so not very old, not the age of many passengers flying these days. Um, So at Everest Base Camp, their oxygen sats went down to an average of 77.7%, and their heart rates went from... 71 to 76. So they were actually working at lower levels of oxygen. And they were certainly fit older trackers since they were trackers. <laughs> so, okay. so, uh, <laughs> Got it. So certainly there is this theoretical underpinning that perhaps these conditions could be affecting our cognition in a way that seems quite similar, if not the same as delirium, which also can be caused by hypoxia, right? 
one thing yeah. that you mentioned is that one of the big causes that is behind this is the lower air pressure at this altitude, which is corrected by cabin air pressure. Could airlines just increase cabin air pressure further and thus decrease the equivalent altitude? Well, what happens if you increase pressure in an enclosed volume where there is very, very low pressure outside because you've got a big differential, haven't you? Because up at thirty to 40,000 feet where they're cruising, the air pressure is very, very low. So you increase the pressure and the risk is that the plane goes pop. You know, it explodes just like a balloon. You blow up the pressure inside to be much greater than the pressure outside and it just gives way. So that's a risk. The other problem is that you could obviously fortify the fuselage, but the risk there is that you'd have to have a very heavy plane. The walls would have to be a lot thicker and stronger and you'd have a much heavier plane. But what also happens is that at ground level, there's same pressure on the inside and the outside of the plane. But up in the air, the pressure inside is much greater than it is on the outside. So with every time the plane ascends and descends, the body of the plane breathes a bit. It expands and it shrinks and it expands and it shrinks. And if you do this to a plane enough times, you get metal fatigue in the structure of the fuselage. So you don't want to make that worse by having a greater pressure gradient when it's in flight. So the airlines know about this and they know about some of the risk of the current cabin pressure because they've been doing quite a lot of research into how they can improve the situation. And one thing they've been doing is looking at the structure of the fuselage and trying to find polymers that are mixed with plastic, which is a little bit more flexible and also very, very strong that could be used to to construct planes. And we've also more recently, in the last two or three years, got jets that are pressurised to 6,000 feet. And the big claim from the airlines is that if the cabin environment is the equivalent of 6,000 feet, people don't get jet lag. (laughs) which makes you think, well, what's jet lag due to then? (laughs) We all thought it was because you were flying east to west or west to east and upsetting your diurnal rhythms. Well, maybe it's actually more related to relative low oxygen during flights. So, yes, it's difficult to find out exactly what the airlines are doing, but these are certainly things that they're looking at changing the pressure. I mean, another thing that I think probably does need to be looked at is whether you couldn't just increase available oxygen. What would happen if at, say, 8,000 feet, you just increase the amount of available oxygen? And the risk there is that unless you do the research, you don't know if that will affect partial pressure of other important gases like CO2 and what effect that might have on peripheral circulation or edema or leakiness of capillaries etc etc so without knowing the physiological effect of altering the partial pressure of oxygen in flight cabin environments it's probably not just safe to just increase oxygen well you bring up jet lag and this is the beauty of it is that i get to be ignorant about all these issues and you get to tell me (laughs) the truth but I did assume jet lag to be related to upset diurnal rhythm. So you change time zones and you're not sleeping at the right time anymore and you might have to stay awake for longer and all that kind of thing. And I guess what might separate the effect of the upset diurnal rhythm from the effect of 
this prolonged hypoxia is if there is an exaggerated effect for long-haul flights versus domestic flights. But I guess the complication in that is that short-haul flights are shorter, and so the exposure is less. Do you know if the change in time zone is a significant contributing factor to people's change in mental state after a flight? And if long-haul versus domestic, if there's any different scene? Um, I don't know of any recent research about this, but certainly 20, 30 years ago, it was very much the received wisdom that jet lag was due to these changes in diurnal rhythms. And there was a theory that if you flew east to west, it was worse than if you flew west to east, etc. And there's also a theory that the number of hours you had to adjust your time clock would predict the number of days you'd still be suffering from jet lag. Actually, I don't think that was right. You know, I think that was a huge overestimate because not everyone flying to New Zealand was jet lagged for 12 days, were they? And I think we've all just been allowed to continue believing it's due to going through time zones. But I think it's quite likely that in-flight mild hypoxia is contributing just as much as going through time zones. The other thing that got some attention in the past was depression and whether that was worse, flying east to west or west to east. But again, I don't think the evidence was ever very good. And it may well be that some people, you know, get quite depressed after the euphoria of mild hypoxia. Or maybe there are other mechanisms. I just think there's an awful lot that we don't yet know about this very common activity. Now, do you think jet lag's real? Let me ask you. Would you I've experienced you jet lag? lag. I've experienced jet lag, but now I'm querying what it's about. I mean, I am also a young person, so I'm hoping that the effect of hypoxia is not so bad on me that it caused the jet lag. I think it is down to, for me, change in time zones. But presumably, one does not exclude the other, and that this could exactly. be a multifactorial issue. I agree. But it is of interest that the airlines themselves say that in their jets that are pressurized to 6,000 rather than 8,000 feet in their in-flight cabins, that jet lag is less of a problem. Right. Which calls into question, what are they describing as jet lag in that sense? Yeah. So from everything that you've said to me about how little we know about this, I can already predict the answer. But I just want to know how significant is this as an issue in terms of do we know morbidity and mortality and admissions caused by flights? The answer is no, we don't. We don't know very much about it at all because it might well have been going on under our noses. You know, the airlines have no motivation to make anything they know about flight risks public, really, do they? I mean, when you think about the tobacco industry and lung cancer or the alcohol industry and the risks of addiction to alcohol or even, I suggest, the food industry and all the added sugar and salt these days, they have good commercial reasons for not wanting to share anything they know about the risks of flying. But from my observations and listening to other people and hearing over and over again over a career of more than 34 years now, I think that it's something that needs more research. And my hope is that by writing this paper with my co-authors and talking to people about it, I'm just raising awareness so that young scientists and young doctors can start actually doing some relevant research. 
And I think the way I see it, the three main areas of research which immediately jump out as being quite good places to start. One is just to do straightforward surveys. So you could survey clinicians who see older people regularly. So that could be liaison psychiatry, geriatricians, um, and just ask if they've seen cases like this or to start logging cases like this. One could survey passengers and send them maybe questionnaires two weeks after they've flown and ask for any symptoms. There could be a case register so that you know people who described cases could actually do something with them because at the moment there are a lot of people seeing cases and they just say oh another of those and they don't know what to do with it but if there was a case register somewhere in the world it would be somewhere to actually start noticing these cases really i think another area of surveys would be to look at cabin crew because they're subjected to these environments regularly and they may all be fit young people but repeated low-grade hypoxia might well have an effect on them, not only just from increasing their hematocrit. So one could work maybe with airline occupational health departments, ask staff and passengers to carry pulse oximeters so you can actually measure and believe it. I know it's difficult to believe, but if you measure it for yourself, it's, you know, it's there. And things like looking at cognition or even amongst women cabin crew you know the, the um, occurrence of miscarriages things like that so it could be a number of surveys which could be quite informative the, the next big area i think is in, in terms of physiology and i suppose i've briefly touched on it there is that it just needs to record a lot more about what happens to human physiology during flight not just in fit young men so all the older people everyone over 65 women, young people, people with pre-existing medical conditions. You know, what happens to them when they have an experience of mild hypoxia for however long it is? It could be between, you know, one hour and 17 hours these days. So just actually gathering data, I think, would be a good place to start with research. And the other area which fascinates me, I guess because I know so little about it, is actually cell biology. There's a lot that you could do in the lab to actually look and see what happens to mitochondria, what happens to nuclei, what happens to neurons. You know, even in cell cultures, when you give them 10 hours of mild hypoxia, what happens? I don't know. And do they recover? Is it irreversible? What stage is it irreversible? And what stage is it reversible? So those would be the areas that where I... Starting out in my career, I would be interested in looking in all those areas, I think, because I think there are enough cases coming to people's attention of the possibility of post-flight confusion for us to look at it in more detail and try and identify whether it really is an entity or whether it's not. And that's what we should take from it as researchers. What about as clinicians, based on what we currently know and you yourself as a clinician, how does it affect your practice or what would you advise clinicians to be aware of? Well, firstly, to be aware that other people have seen cases of post-flight confusion. I suppose once it's happened, there's not much you can do except maybe identify that as a possible etiology of someone's acute confusion. But in terms of preventing it, I think one can have conversations with families who want to take their elderly or not so elderly their relative with dementia on holiday 
to South Africa or something, you can actually talk to them about whether or not they really need to go. And could they go somewhere else that didn't involve a flight? Could they travel via a different route? Because I would be very hesitant to take any relative of mine who had dementia on a flight, not only because they'd be disorientated by the new environments, but because of possible risk from the experience. With quite a few of my patients these days, I recommend they get a pulse oximeter and actually measure it for themselves because it it becomes a lot more real then. And depending on where they are on their dementia voyage, so to speak, they might make different decisions. They will balance risks and benefits differently. But I think, you know, awareness and giving people informed choice is an important place to start, really. Well, it's a fascinating subject, which is also wrapped up in a lot of intrigue because of the information that we're not privy to, which is one of many things I think that the aviation industry is hesitant to share details on. But thank you for taking me through the paper, and I do hope that people listening will take an interest in it and it can become a more focused research topic going forward. Is there anything that we've not broached that you wanted to mention? Just to say thank you very much for asking me to talk about this paper and thanks to my co-authors who have been great to work with and are both younger than me and I hope that they will take this forward in their two different fields as well. But yes, I think raising awareness is very important. And, you know, in the future, if I'm proved to be wrong, and this is all just coincidence, I've been noticing these cases, well, that's fine. But if research shows that this is a real issue, then there are things that can be done about it. And that's really what we should be looking to, is identifying risk and minimising it. Well, thank you for speaking to me. Very welcome. Thank you. And we thank Dr. Janetta Rand for joining us and guiding us through that really interesting paper. Hammy, what did you think? Well, I think clearly this is uncharted territory that deserves to have more light shone upon it, frankly. It's quite an interesting topic of discussion, isn't it? Sadly, I fear, as Dr. Rands does mention, if there were these negative effects associated with air travel, would the flight industry have much incentive to elucidate them and make them more public? I'm not claiming there's knowledge of public harm that's being withheld from the masses, uh, heavens no, but clearly multiple cases have sprung up of individuals displaying a state of delirium following a flight. And is it, as put forward in the biological theory, put forward in this paper, secondary to a state of hypoxia or change in pressure? We know, as Dr. Rands mentioned, that air travel, particularly at the pressures known in use by current commercial planes, does have effects on the vascular system. Otherwise, we wouldn't be so worried about DVTs and whatnot. Clearly, there are people who are quite affected and... As Dr. Rands mentioned, it may be worth considering alternatives for individuals who have themselves had increased confusion following a flight. I like the suggestion of for an individual from the Channel Islands using a, a helicopter-based form of transport instead, or the suggestion of, say, using the Eurotunnel to go to Disneyland Paris. But it would be interesting to see if the travel industry would be 
willing to allow doctors and scientists to conduct further research in this field to try and elucidate the nature of post-flight confusional states. I agree. I think it certainly sets up a interesting bedrock of supposition that can be built on by further research. And certainly if it changed anyone's clinical practice, I think it would be just to consider recent flights for people who are presenting with new onset confusion amongst the other things that you would otherwise consider. Exactly. In a history taking, I know for when we're considering any form of infection, we always ask about recent travel, but perhaps we should be asking about recent travel with almost any history taking, it seems, where someone presents with a change in their state of consciousness or if they appear confused. I mean, you got to think about it. Planes were not made to travel in planes. I don't think we've evolved to go that high and go that fast and cross oceans. Maybe man wasn't meant to go over the edge of the earth, you know? <laughs> I'm not a flat earther. Well, it's like Icarus. Oh, Icarus flying too close to the sun and then the yeah. wax in his wings melt. Maybe Daedalus just shouldn't have used wax as a binding agent, you know? Maybe use something that's a bit more resilient to heat. Come on, dude. <laughs> You're so good with classics and you know all these things. Dude, I've just been playing Hades a lot. <laughs> I see, I see. So, a quote to bring up from the Aerospace Psychiatry chapter of Fundamentals of Aerospace Medicine. God denied to men the faculty of flight so that they might lead a quiet and tranquil life. For if they knew how to fly, they would always be in perpetual danger. And that is Juan Garamoel de Lobkowitz, who was a Spanish Catholic scholastic philosopher, 1670. That's a fantastic quote and all, but just replace flight with automobile use and also fire. <laughs> you know, Hephaestus's flame. Yeah, we do die from those. <laughs> yeah, like, I'm not to diminish the point being made. It's a fantastic quote, really. But seriously, look up automobile death rates <laughs> Like compared to... We get so anxious about air travel and, and flight and, you know, we, we should always be a, a little bit cautious. But just crossing the road is more dangerous than getting on a plane. Um... <laughs> on that note, we hope everybody listening flies safe. Probably flies responsibly in this day and age. And we will join you again in another episode of the BJ Psych International Podcast. My name is Sachin. And my name is Hamilton. Thanks for joining us. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this BJ Psych International Podcast. For the latest updates, follow us on Twitter at the BJ Psych. To listen to more podcasts from the BJ Psych Journal portfolio, visit us on SoundCloud or search for us online.